Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in San Francisco today uh, with none other than Eileen Giddens, who is the founder and executive chairman of Blurp. Uh, Eileen, I'm so excited to finally meet you uh, because I feel like we know each other already because, of course, I've, I've used Blurp and, I've, uh, and uh, it's, it was a platform with which I brought my last book to life. I am always delighted to meet customers and particularly people like you because you propagate blurb out into the world without me even asking. I must have been all suspicious when I walked in and I saw my book in the lobby uh, sitting there at Pride of Place on the shelf. I thought you must have had all the, you know, Santa's elves put that in place before I arrived. It's actually not true. Uh, for those of you who are listening and you may not have seen uh, Mike's book, you should check it out. The reason it's on the shelf is it's beautifully designed, but it's also very innovative in terms of the delivery of the information, it's it's itself its own piece of art. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I don't know if I, I, I told you the uh, the complete story about how I ended up using Blurb, but it, it was really just out of sheer panic and terror. Um, <laughs> a good customer. I, no, I mean, I, my previous publisher, who, who I won't name uh, in this context, uh, they, they couldn't print enough copies of, of, of my previous book for, for a customer, and I think they wanted like a thousand copies. And my agent had called up in, you know, in, in panic and was like, listen, you know, the customers can promise books. They must have books. If you don't have books uh, in uh, six weeks' time, you may not have a customer or a business. Yeah. So, um, you know, my team was scrambling and I actually realized I worked backwards and said, you know, I've got six weeks. Uh, maybe I can write this book in two. It's going to take four weeks to publish. <laughs> what is the, how can I do Assuming that I have to do it, how could I do it? It turned out you guys are the only people who could actually help me do it. And then, of course, all I had to do was for every uh, every day for two weeks, I got up at 3 a.m. and sat in the L.A. diner and wrote this damn thing. Well, uh, so, so I think you're proving the point here in Silicon Valley that constraints are a wonderful thing. <laughs> but, it, but it was amazing. So, you know, I, I wanted, of course, to meet you and, uh, and to learn a little bit about how you ended up going on this journey to disrupt publishing as we know it. Yes. So, um, so I had been CEO of two other companies back in the 1.0 days and bo sold both of them, although not for much more than uh, a tiny fraction of money. <laughs> um, people had jobs, but no, I'm not living the high life in the south of France, so let's put it that way. Stay, keeping my head in the game though, I started to work for an investment bank uh, doing um, research and interesting things like that, but to keep my head and my soul and my heart alive and well, I needed a cathartic experience hmm. after running two uh, high-powered VC-backed companies here. So I started to photograph again because I actually have a degree in photography. Right. I worked for Eastman Kodak Company right out of school. Was, was that an early passion for your photography? Uh, very much so. My dad, um, my dad, my parents are British, and my dad gave me a camera um, when I was 11 years old, a, an S a real SLR. Like a, I mean, like a, like a like a Kodak Retina camera, and I had to learn <laughs> ASA and shutter speed and loading film, and I was terrified of that I would break it. 
but he gave it to me before I went on a trip to visit with his sister who lived in England. And I was there for the summer for three months. And I remembered taking a photograph on the um, near near Cambridge of punters on the Thames, and I thought it was brilliant. I thought. Seriously, I was so proud of this photograph. It's so dreadful. It's such a cliche. It's like swans on the river with a boat in the background and the tree overhang. And I get a snapshot. Did you have the sort of the the lens that was a bit sort of a... Fuzzy. fuzzy. Oh, yeah, the whole thing. And so it was just awful. But I was so proud. I mean, 11, right? So I get this photograph back. I get a couple of snapshot prints made. I send one back in a letter. This is pre-email back to my family in California. And my dad writes me back describing the rule of thirds. And the rule of thirds is this notion in photography where you don't center everything. Hmm. You split the image up into thirds horizontally it's and down. the golden mean. Yeah, so that you you have some energy and some movement in the, in the image. And of course I had centered every bloody thing <laughs> right in the middle of the photo. And I was destroyed by this. But that was the first step in becoming really interested in composition. And I never lost the bug after that. When I was at Berkeley, I was in studying journalism and I was doing a lot of work with photos and you know editing photos. And that's what led me to continue on after I graduated to get another degree in art and studying photography. So after I needed this cathartic experience to get back to myself, after running these two startups back to back, I thought I'm going to f- start photographing again. So literally, I I got out my Google Calendar and I booked myself two to three days a week. I was either in the field photographing or in either my digital darkroom or still wet darkroom printing, both, right. three days a week. And I got to the place where I wanted a project. I wanted, you know, two... <laughs> too much of a business person probably to just completely let it go I wanted there to be a beginning a middle and an end right you I'm, didn't want to just go and photograph swans in the lake no right. no no more swans so <clears throat> I thought I know I'll I'll ask entrepreneurs that I'd built these companies with because I wanted to stay in touch right uh-huh. if they would mind you know we'll go out for a day and I'll take a photograph and one by one they all said yes what kinds of people were you shooting? oh my god everybody I mean it was amazing I met people, and I wanted to go somewhere that meant something to them. So not in some sterile place. I'd say, okay, let's go to somewhere that is meaningful to you. I went to driving ranges on golf courses. I went went wind kite diving. (laughs) I was in a boxing, a boxing gym, a boxing, you know, hand boxing gym. I mean, crazy. I mean, it was, I was all over the city. And so... And they were engineer, a lot of engineers, some marketing, everybody. I mean, I was, you know, what, Catholic with a salt, small C in terms of I wanted to get to know people in a way that sadly I had not spent the time to get to know them when we worked uh-huh. together. Yeah. And one by one, they told me their stories about how they got into the business and where did they come? A lot of international people. So where were you from originally? Tell me about your family. I mean, there were some stories I heard of people who were had to escape from you know, what now is the former Russian Soviet Union um, in the back of cars and being shot at with shotgun. I mean, seriously, like crazy stories. And before I knew it, I had a body of work that represented these people, plus a lot of very interesting stories. And what started out being just personal kind of cathartic work, uh, I realized this was a whole community of people. 
they knew each other. And a book. Yeah. Well, my first my first thought was I have to make custom prints for everybody. Christ, this will take me. It'll be a fortune, and it will take me the rest of my natural life because I am one of those insane people. Yeah. I'll spend five hours making a print, right? So, so I thought, well, that's not going to work. And then I thought, yeah, I know. Sure, I'll just make a book. I'll make it once. I'll order fifty copies. <laughs> It'll be great, right? It'll be brilliant. And so this was back in two thousand four, two thousand five. And literally couldn't do it. And I, I um, for those of your listeners who may be tennis fans, who may know of John McEnroe, the tennis player, he's famous for saying, you can't be serious, right? To the umpire whenever the umpire would make a call. And I wandered around for the better part of a year learning about how publishing, the publishing business worked hmm. and the business model of publishing. And I kept saying, you can't be serious. This is not a business. Really, there's no data. You are ordering thousands of books, hoping that they'll sell through. And you have to order thousands because by the time they come over on the boat from China, you will have missed the window. If you go to market and there's more demand than you can fulfill this with the, the order. This is the whole offset printing. Oh my God, it was just unbelievable. Because you wanted to print not a thousand, but- One. Right. At a time. <laughs> I, by the way, I'd be happy to print a thousand. But you know, the whole idea here was what if only one copy of a title would be all that would ever be produced? Hmm. Could we have a business? That was the idea. Because if we, could, if we could solve for that problem and have a business and make money, we could turn the entire model on its head. And you're right, in 2004, that, that would have just been a ridiculous suggestion. Ridiculous, ridiculous. And in fact, when I went out with my, armed with my PowerPoint slides and some copies of books that we had sort of like forced into being as examples, um, most of the VCs I met with at that time thanked me for, you know, it's great to see you, Eileen. You know, keep in touch. But they thought I was a lunatic, really, because it was, in fairness, it was a time when everything was going online. So uh, social media was just starting with MySpace. Um, there was uh, wikis, bl the blogosphere, huge, right? Yeah. So everybody was putting things online into digital. And here I am saying, okay, I'm going to take all this fantastic digital content that you all are creating here with Word documents and with images. And I've got this great idea. I want to take it all analog. <laughs> Doesn't it sound great? Yeah, yeah. You know, print them one at a time. <laughs> yeah. And really, truly, they thought... Um, uh, you know, they thought it was nuts. So it took me over a year to get financed. Mm. And I finally got financed. Um, and that in itself is a funny story. I had been not only on the boards of my own companies, I've been outside board directors and a couple of other ones. And one of which I was very impressed with one in, one in particular of the VCs on the board because the company was going through some tough times and he was very entrepreneur friendly, very sensitive to look, let's make it work as opposed to let's throw a bomb into the middle of the situation. And so when it came time for me to go and find some money for what became Blurb, I thought, ooh, let me see what John's up to. And he works, his name's John Bale and he works at Canaan Partners. And so I went onto their site and all I could find, Mike, was they were doing all enterprise, kind of B2B enterprise deals. And I thought, oh crap. He must be bored out of his brain. <laughs> well, no, you know what it was? I thought, oh no, worse than that. I thought, I don't want him to have to say no to me. Uh. Because if they're not doing consumer facing things, 
you know, A, I don't want to waste his time. I'll see him privately, you know, socially, but I don't want him to say no. Well, one day, and this is the reverse psychology that we all fall prey to occasionally. I was down in his building down in Sand Hill Road meeting another VC, and I, I, I emailed him and I said, hey, I'm, I'm in your building. You have a few minutes. And he said, sure. I went over and I just, I just wanted to reconnect. And, and he said, well, what are you doing? I said, oh, it's, you know, John, it's not for you. And I wasn't being it's coy. It's not for you. <laughs> I swear to you, I was not being coy. I'm like, oh, no, let's tell, what are you up to? Tell me about, you know, companies we knew together and how are they doing when you're investing in. And of course, the more he asked about what I was up to, the more I demurred until finally I said, do you really want to know? And I said, John, it's not for you. I don't want to waste your time. And he said, no, tell me. Long story, I leave his office like three hours later. I'm invited back the next week to pitch the partnership and we secure the first million dollars of funding. And you would think that getting the second million would be easy, because I needed to. Um, no, it was not easy. Yeah. And I ended up going to some other VCs that I knew. And so I learned a lesson here, which is, um, there were a couple things. One is I want to talk to you about being a female. And the second one was, the other lesson I learned is, you know, the people from whom you're going to get the best audience are people who trust you with whom you have some experience. Right. And, and with both of these firms, I'd had some positive experience. As opposed to just trusting the idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the idea, let's, all, let's be honest, the idea at that time probably was a little suspect. It's become wildly successful, but at the time, it was very contrarian. And VCs are not always known for being contrarian. What's, what's changed, do you feel? I mean, because I remember 2004, I mean, the biggest idea was you could sell a book online. Yeah. That, that was about the extent of the publishing disruption. Yeah, that's true. It was, and it was Amazon. Yeah. It wasn't even the publishing industry. That's right. They were in a panic and still yeah. are, right? So what, what happened was um, the technology for printing really moved from old offset metal plates and liquid, kind of like it's the analogy to photography. Photography mm -hmm. was chemical-based, you know, chemistry-based. Silver based, halide. Silver halide. Darkroom, chemistry, <clears throat> ooh, horrible stuff, into digital. And this is what happened in the world of printing as well, hmm. except commercial printing moved into digital print, so digital plates, and then and then eventually just send me a file. Hmm. And so I, I could tell that was coming. What, what ended up happening is I became a student of two things in order to get this business off the ground. Uh, by the way, I knew nothing about publishing. I was a complete, complete... Um, naive, uh, completely naive and in fact I think that's oftentimes how great companies mm -hmm. are founded because I just had the problem I wanted to solve which is I want to make a book it's not even for sale it will never be for sale it's 50 people no one has ever heard of right but I want to give them a gift and I want to order 50 copies and I don't have a rich uncle who's going to bankroll this for 10 grand. Right. And the other thing I learned when I thought, well, maybe I should just figure out how to just get it done. I ran into the minimum print run problem of offset. I could run a thousand. Yeah. I couldn't run 50. And so I wandered around, you know, being pissed off about this for, and I kept looking. I, I thought I was doing the search wrong on Google. I thought, well, okay, let me try another way to search this. And I kept going back because I thought, come on. Desktop publishing, hello, been around, been there, done that, meets, um, de meets digital printing. I'm printing in my digital darkroom in my home studio. Yeah. Meets e-commerce. I built e-commerce engines. It was the companies I built. I mean, we built that, right? So I thought, why is this not there? 
And I learned the reason is, is because the application. No one had really busted out with the killer app. And the killer app was mountains of digital imagery that people were now taking in point and shoot cameras. And of course, then camera phones that were never seeing the light of day. And then they're stuck on some computer hard drive. Right. And the analog to that was, at least in the olden days, you'd get the snapshots back. Yeah, so you could put those in a book if you want. And your mother would put them in the little book and you'd and have them. And subject visitors to the house. And subject your friends who <laughs> didn't really want to see you when you were nine years old. Yeah, so, and now there was nothing. There was nothing, and I thought, oh, come on. That's, that people will want to do this. And as somebody who'd studied photography, and I would have killed to have had my portfolio, multiple copies of that in circulation instead of the one big case that was in circulation to one art director and then you know waiting for it to come did, back. Did, did you anticipate when you were doing this that it wouldn't just be proud mums and wedding books, that it would actually be people doing their um, corporate magazines, that people would be self-publishing, that, I mean, you, there's a whole ecosystem now that's sprung up around Blur. So I, with all, all hubris, I will say, yes, I actually did imagine that. And in fact, I went back and I looked at my first PowerPoint deck and for getting funding. And right in there, it's amazing, right in there. I mean, we got the words wrong and it's kind of, we called it, I can't even remember what we called it, it was something crazy. But the idea was that I, I really had a dream and the dream was for any reason or no reason, if you had something to say, and you wanted to put it in a beautiful form that was curated and created by you mm. for any reason or no reason, you should be able to make a book. The technology now existed. And so from the get-go, I knew that there would be, I mean, there would be some categories that would just be killer. Photography, we got lucky with that one because that was my strong suit. And we just got lucky with, I mean, images are the new lingua franca, right? I mean, they are the way we communicate now. I got lucky with that. But we, we looked at we looked at cookbooks. We, we looked at brand books. Hmm. We looked at anybody whose work was visual, architects, designers of any kind who wanted their lookbook, to want to get their work out there in physical form, um, was we're just going to be our target market, right? So because of that, it was critical that we we built a product that would have the best possible quality. And I mean best at a price, okay? So we're not, you know, we're not handcrafting things with duotones, but we are, we, are, we are aspiring to deliver the kind of quality that a Magnum photographer, that the Tate Gallery, that uh, Steven Soderbergh, that you know any of those people who are that discerning would want to use and by the way all of those that i just mentioned are blur customers amazing yeah so if we could get the quality right and if we could solve the hard problem first which is photographers are the most discerning people in the world in terms of a photography book because unlike other things where it's a photograph of the thing you built of the thing the photograph is the thing yeah so it, you've got to hit it you've just got to hit the the fidelity, the color, the etc. Everything has to be really good. So we struggled with that, especially with black and white in the early years. Everything looked kind of selenium told and went to the purple because it's a four color process. Mm -hmm. How do you get black and white out of a four color process? Tough. But we invested in it and we were committed to it. And now, you know, Blurb is a over $70 million global business. Um, we see on 
peak volumes we'll see, I'm not kidding, a new title come over our servers every three or four seconds. And, and I mean, having liberated the book from the economic constraints of traditional printing, where do you feel it can go next? I mean, what, what, what happens to publishing now? Yeah. So, like so many things now in our society where the decentralization of things and the democratization of things just allows so many more voices in participants. Look at music. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, for the traditional guys, it's like very challenging because their business model is disrupted. But if you have nothing to lose. But if you have no, but if you're a musician, yeah. okay, and you just want to get out there and make some music, oh my God. Yeah, SoundCloud, all these platforms. Amazing. Yeah. You Look at what we're doing here. We're creating radio in, in with a tiny Sony recorder in my office. And it's going to go out <laughs> Don't to... Don't let too much daylight into the magic, yeah, Aline. <laughs> 20,000 20, people are going to hear this that's amazing but you know we were talking about this before and you said to some extent i mean the great innovation behind all of this is the fact that now if you can create a, a good digital file yeah there's so many things you can now do with that and, and not just printing but you know 3d uh you know materialization it's it's it so we are really coming into the the next golden age of manufacturing right which is the first golden age was let's tool up factories and let's become, you know, let's Ford, Henry Ford. You know, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, hmm. right? So tooling up for mass production. And then we went into a mode where we got very clever about and very automated with our machinery and we could do customization on a mass basis, right? But it's still tooling up and you still have to deliver, you have to deliver raw materials, supply chain. Mm -hmm. There has to be physical, physicality, right? Yeah. Now what's happening is the third age of manufacturing and creating things, right? Now all you need is a browser, some sort of creation tool, create a file and it can go off into the ether and be manufactured literally into physical goods. Sometimes the good isn't ever intended to be physical. It's a virtual good. Hmm. I've been looking at new business models around this, around what if I want to create a virtual goods marketplace? We have them now. It's called stock photography. We have them now. It's called digital music files. But what if the good itself is a, is a template for Tumblr? Yeah. You know, uh, or, for, or for virtual reality, or for that's where I'm headed next. You know, or or little tools for games, right? You know, little mm. widgets for inside games. This is happening now, and people are being exposed to the world of really being entrepreneurs themselves from the privacy of their own bedroom. It's amazing. Uh, this this new capability of the ability to create a a renderable file because <laughs> yeah. it's not even graphic design it, it's not CAD it's it's kind of a new capability that I know if I had had kids I would want them to be able to learn that but it, it's sort of got a, it's sort of an evolving skill set that we can't really put a pin in yet so in the last for, for other reasons which another time I will tell you more about but mm. I've been exploring some other things right and so in the last month or so I have now personally made are you ready for this I have made customized chocolate bars. Seriously, all on, online, through files. Okay, mm. I have, oh, this is all online. I have created a file, I've, I've designed my own textile and ordered not only raw yardage of it, but I'm having a duvet cover made out of the textile that I designed in one of 20 different fabrics I could have chosen from, seriously. I created a little, a piece of jewelry, a pendant, 
a little dog paw with my dog's name in it. <laughs> and I got it in pink, <clears throat> pink plastic for the princely sum of like $3.49. Seriously, <laughs> delivered to my door. Well, I had to pay shipping. But I created the model, a little model, and I had it manufactured and shipped to me. I mean, we are, we are able now to create things via files and have them just manufactured on demand. It's, it's, it's really astonishing. Just think about what, what that means for the future, the, the future of work, right? Yeah. The future of work, and when I think about, I mentioned a moment ago, women. Well, I was gonna ask you, because I mean, yeah. it, it seems that we no longer have technological constraints. Right. But there seem to still be some very big cultural constraints. And one of the things I know you get asked to uh, talk about a lot uh, is how women can, you know, effectively be as successful as you've been as, as an entrepreneur and as a leader. Yeah. Uh, what, why do we not see more women in Silicon Valley? Uh, well, we're starting to see more, so that's good. But yeah. I think there are a number of reasons. One is that um, in terms of founding teams, there's been some recent recent research done. I read an article on TechCrunch not too long ago, and I think the percent was 16% that the amount of funding that had gone into founding teams that at least had a female on them had risen to 16%, you know, and it's like doubled. This is terrible, right? And I'm, on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, that's good. It's going in the right direction. And then I'm like, that means 84% go to all-male teams. I'm like, oh. What is wrong with this picture? Yeah. And so I really started thinking about it. And for a talk I had to do down at a company down in Mountain View, I did a little bit more research. And I and I realized from, there's real third-party data on this, that women, women self-select out, okay? They think they're not qualified. So they're not even being actively discriminated against. They actually just choose not to put their hand up. Oh, I think it's both. Right. Okay. <laughs> <In fairness. laughs> no. Right. Well, the discriminated against is, yeah, the VC community is still very male, although it's improving, but it is a male-dominated community. Mm. Okay. And it's human nature to feel comfortable with people that kind of look like you and you have some camaraderie with, so I understand that. So I think having more women go into that is going to help. But on the other side of it, is the question of, you know, are women raising their hands and saying, I want to I want to start companies, right? That's a question. And so I started to really wonder about why, what's going on when they're younger that is causing these women to not be represented at the table at the same level, leaving aside, the, are they getting funded or not? I'm even just asking the question, are they, are they coming to the table, right? Hmm. And so I think it has a lot to do with girls when they're young in school and different biases and cultural norms for boys versus girls and expectations for girls for being perfect and being the model student and raising their hand and asking permission. No, oh. None of those things are actually the kinds of um, skills that entrepreneurs are known for sitting back and raising your hand and asking permission. I mean, think about it. Entrepreneurs tend to be people who are like, damn the torpedoes full steam ahead. And causing trouble at the back of the class, presumably. It, presumably. So I think that I think that we have a ways to go to that's on one side of it. There's another in terms of getting financed and women entering into and wanting to start companies. Hmm. But there's another thing that I've been looking at recently and I've been reading a lot about this, and that is I think the culture of work now and we are here in an office, okay, and we are in downtown San Francisco. And increasingly, I think, if we are serious about bringing more women into the workforce, 
we need to think about different ways to organize work. Hmm. And I'm, I'm really quite serious about this. Um, I think that um, we, we need to accommodate, and it's true that women are more often than men, the principal caregivers or the ones who leave the job. And I mean, by virtue of just anatomy, come on, right? There's that. If we had, if we can build companies now from the get-go, people, you know, other women entrepreneurs, male entrepreneurs, I don't care, whoever, but from the vantage point of we believe we're leaving too much talent out of the pool to the extent that we create a nine to five culture where we ask people to drive and commute in to a location five days a week. Hmm. Stop. How can we, the tools are now there to have a really distributed company. You just have to be committed to having a distributed company that has more flexibility so that you can take advantage of the total talent pool. But do you think working from home is is the answer to this? Because in some ways, I've noticed that companies that have a very strong bias towards remote work create other kinds of silos, like the people that are in the office versus the ones you never see. You need to protect against that. By the way, I think there's a middle ground. Yeah. I'm a fan of you need to be together. You need hallway conversations often enough with enough frequency hmm. um, so that you... But that's a different kind of office. But right? that's a different kind of office. It's not It's not kind of cubicles. It's, it's no. things that are designed actually for Around people that. who don't need an office. Right. Maybe you do a deal with a WeWork for a, a week a month. Yeah. And you just converge, you know, at a WeWork and you just take a week a month. There's got to be a reason they have that huge valuation. I mean, they must have figured out something about work that the rest of us know. have missed. Yeah, but I, I really think that there's real value in the people-to-people connection. Yeah. But, but I will also tell you that unless we find ways to provide men and women, but I'm, you know, coming at this obviously as a female from the female point of view to to provide women ways to participate, flex hours, work from home, part-time job sharing. I've read some statistics recently that the number of women, I'm gonna get this wrong, but directionally I'll be right, okay? The number of women who leave the workforce, and I'm talking about highly skilled workforce now, from the ages of 30, to 45 and never return uh, is like 60 of women who leave the workforce during those years never return 60 percent of them never return to the workforce that's between the ages of 30 and 45 it's something like that they just they get out of the workforce and then they feel disconnected and they don't have the skills anymore but what if there was a way all through that that they could keep their hand in it. Yeah. That they could stay abreast of what's new. They could keep their skills up and then re-enter full-time if they want to. If you were able to intervene early enough and and you could give advice or opportunities to young girls, where do you think they would best focus their attention? So, I would coding. (laughs) Really? Yes, absolutely. Does this go back to what we were talking about earlier about your ability to create a digital file? Yes. That's where I would go. Right. I so would, this is not coding in, in, in the old sense of just like C++, right? No. I mean, this is more like kind of... Yeah. Build digital Computational things. thinking. Yeah. This is this is creative. Right. Okay. This is really... Th- I mean, UX design. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating, right? UX experiences. How do you en- engage people? When I say coding, I mean design. You mean digital assembly. Digital assembly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, what if you want to, you know, 
decode code, more power to you as well. But I think this is an area where girls should get on it right now. They would love it. Girls are increasingly, you know, we were talking about <laughs> Minecraft, right? Yeah. And yeah. that fantastic New York Times article. Oh, it was mind blowing. It was brilliant. I was, I really, what my mind really was, I ended up calling all my friends and said, do you play Minecraft? And let me talk to your son. I've, okay, one small story. A friend of mine who was a CMO here previously went to lunch with her. She said, her son, Matthew, was so into Minecraft when he was 13 years old that that summer between junior high and high school, he was playing all the time. And Robin, his mother, said to him, look, you gotta do something, you gotta get a job, you gotta do something. And so that day, he figures out how he can make Minecraft his job. I'm not kidding you, <laughs> this kid. So he presents to his parents that night a PowerPoint deck he got some template online for how to create a business plan. This is like four, three years ago. And he pitched his parents on, I need funding. I need $250 to build a Minecraft server that I'm gonna then charge all my buddies to who will play a monthly fee and I will pay you back, you know, in 60 days. <laughs> Did he do it? He got funded. <laughs> like, and, and then his parents broke the news to him that he had to pay for his own college education. <laughs> no, there's, a, there's a small postscript that the, um, it was so successful that the parents of the other boys called and asked, could he please take down the server because they were playing games so much, the sons, that they needed to get into high school and they needed to do their homework. Eileen, so. it's been a great pleasure finally meeting you and of course hearing your stories. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Hey, listen, this was great fun. Thank you, my pleasure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. <laughs>